Good morning, Richmond. Good to see you all being cultural resistors this morning, making it out here on a long weekend. It's good to see some familiar faces, some unfamiliar faces. Really excited to be worshipping together with you this morning. Um, And as Mark said, we've been doing this series on the I Am statements found in the Gospel of John as Jesus reveals who he is. And I'm excited to consider what Jesus is telling us when he says he is the resurrection and the life. Melinda shared with us last week on Jesus as a shepherd. And we considered what it means that Jesus has been using metaphors to describe himself. That he used metaphor. And Melinda took us back to primary school and considered what metaphors draw out in us what we can learn from them, the depth that they reveal. But it feels in this statement today that Jesus almost gets to a point where he starts shedding the metaphors, starts recognising that people aren't exactly picking up what he's putting down, that his metaphors aren't prompting what they were meant to in them. And I'm not sure if it's intentional, I'm not a John scholar, but it looks to me as though Jesus' I am statements throughout John, as they progressively come along, they seem to get less and less abstract. He starts by calling himself the bread and the light, then moves on to the gate and the shepherd. And now we get to I am the resurrection and the life. And then we'll look at I am the way, the truth and the life. And Jesus is just speaking a little bit more plainly, saying this is who I am. This is why I'm here. And his final I am statement, the one we'll land on in a couple of weeks, is he is a true vine, which might sound like a return to abstractivity if I can invent a word. But to Israel, the picture of the vine is basically Jesus spelling out directly to them that I am the Messiah. I am who I am. Jesus' I am statement, they clearly, they slowly reveal who he is and what he came to earth for. As we've been praying as a team over recent weeks, we've been considering this series. And and when we start writing a series together, we know that there are themes that are clear from the beginning, themes that we can plan for. But there's also themes that sort of come out over the course of a series. And we've been praying that we'll discern what they are. And so some of the themes Mark would have mentioned this morning um, that we knew were going to happen where Christ's self-revelation, we knew there'd be this connection of King Jesus to the Old Testament writings, that Jesus would be showing how he embodies and fulfills the revelation of God. But as I've been reflecting on the whole series this last week, one that's emerged for me as the series has gone on, maybe one I should have seen ahead of time, but one that's really become obvious the last few weeks, is that all of these metaphors, all of these topics, all of these statements, they refer to life. As we said a few weeks ago, it's perhaps obvious because the first two words are I am. They're a statement of existence. They have to be to do with life. But because we're family, I hope you're okay with me making a small confession, which is two weeks ago I preached on I am the gate and I hadn't looked forward to what I was looking for, what I was preaching on two weeks later. And so a lot of my reflections on I am the gate was how Jesus was the life, how he was the path to life. And so then when I finished that sermon and looked at what I'm preaching out in two weeks and saw I am preaching on Jesus is the life, I realised I might be covering some familiar ground. I might be borrowing a little bit. Hopefully I didn't make, or hopefully it was a little bit forgettable what I said two weeks ago and I could almost get away with some copy and paste. But I think the truth is all of Jesus' statements, they're a reflection that he is the life. He is existence. The gospel really, truly, absolutely, I can't stress it enough, the gospel is all about life. And as opposed to the metaphors Jesus has given in the previous weeks that we've looked at, this revelation that Jesus is the life is wedged in the middle of a story where he demonstrates through action that he is the bringer, the giver, the ultimate sustainer of life. We don't have to work out what the metaphor is. And when I read through the seven I am statements of John, this was perhaps the one I was least familiar with. 
didn't really jump out to me when I read John in the past that Jesus claimed that he is the resurrection and the life. I'd often heard about Jesus as the bread, Jesus as the vine, Jesus as the way, the truth, the life. But never really thought of Jesus describing himself as the resurrection. I thought of him as the resurrected. I connected him with the event of the resurrection. But if someone asked me who Jesus is, depending on the context, I could see myself jumping to a metaphor of he is the shepherd. He is the light. He is the gate. I don't know what often start with he is the resurrection. Yes, he's the resurrected. Yes, I'd tell the story of the resurrection. But he reveals himself. He names himself the resurrection. So let's spend some time in the passage this morning where Jesus reveals himself this way. And we're going to be reading from John 11, 17 to 44, if you'd like to read along. And it's the story of Lazarus, a story that many of you will know, a story that gets some fame. John 11, 17 to 44. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem. And many Jews had come to Mary and Martha to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odour, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth across his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. It's an incredible story, isn't it? Sounds like it's made for a movie. 
And just like really good movies, Jesus includes a reference to the resurrection as something entirely relevant to this small story within the gospel, entirely relevant to what's happening in front of him. But it's also foreshadowing what's going to happen in the rest of the gospel, what the rest of the story is going to tell us. It's telling us what his mission is. I'm not sure if any of you have watched the movie The Prestige. It's one of my favourite movies. I've gone back to it quite a few times. But right at the start of the movie, this movie about rival magicians who are trying to outdo each other, one of the characters performs a magic trick to a young child. And the child is more perceptive than the crowd. The child manages to work out how the trick takes place. And on first watch, it's this nice scene. It helps introduce a few of the characters to one another. It endears one of the characters to us as the audience. But when you get to the end of the movie and you see a few of the twists that have happened, you realise that this one-minute scene at the start, it's a foreshadowing exactly what happens in the movie. The twist is the same. It's a really clever bit of directing. But I think it's exactly what happens in this story. In, John, in the way John presents his gospel, the story of Lazarus is telling us what is to come. It's telling us King Jesus, he has power over death which we're going to see in an even bigger and better way later on in the story. It shows that King Jesus has an eye to an eternity in a way that we'll only fully understand later on in the story. It shows us King Jesus expressing strong emotions, perhaps only matched when we come to the crucifixion story. There's a stone covering a tomb that needs to be rolled away. There's a man in grave clothes and strips of linen he uses the term rise again multiple times, just as we now use the term he is risen. These should prompt thoughts in us. These should foreshadow what is coming next. And yet it's clearly a story in and of its own right. Jesus can say, I am the resurrection and the life because of the very thing he does in this story, because he brings back Lazarus. But we can say confidently that our king he is the resurrection and the life because we know what happens in the rest of the story. We know Easter is coming. And it's hard for us to read the Lazarus story without casting our mind forward to what comes next, to see these echoes. But those within the story, they didn't know what was to come. So when we hear Christ say, he is the resurrection, when we consider what this revelation means, we have a fairly specific idea of what that looks like. But it's one that's quite different to what the people within the story would have expected. I must admit, I always find it a little bit ironic that we call this story the Lazarus story, given really he doesn't do a whole lot, does he? He's kind of a passive part of it. Really, it's another King Jesus story, but we have so many King Jesus stories and only one Lazarus story, so we'll allow him this small mercy. In fact, I'd probably argue, and I will a little bit later, I think this is more a Mary and Martha story. I think they're the, probably the heroes of this story outside of Jesus. And John, in his gospel, he does things a little bit differently to the other gospels, to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He's the only one that tells this story. He's the only one that tells the story of Lazarus. But there's also distinct themes weaved into the book of John. There's seven I am statements, the very thing that we're doing in this series. There's seven significant signs and wonders, seven main miracles. The book starts with a prologue, ends with an epilogue. There's this big section that seems to be on Jesus' miracles, or the book of signs. There's a long section on the passion, or the Easter story. And John gives this story, what we've just read, a position of prominence within his book. Outside of the Easter story, it's the final miracle. It's the conclusion of the section that we would refer to as the book of signs. 
as I sort of hinted before, it feels like this is the point in the story that has Jesus has elements of Jesus just throwing his hands up in the air. He goes, you didn't get it when I turned water into wine. You didn't get it when I healed the man with paralysis. You didn't get it when I fed the 5,000, when I walked on water. You didn't even get it when I told you that I was the bread, that I was the light, that I was the shepherd, that I'm the gate. I'll make it plain. I am the life. I'll show you. I'll raise someone from the dead. And so, and so there comes along his friend Lazarus. The news that his friend has passed. His friend is in the tomb. This news is presented by two incredible women of faith, these two close followers and companions of his, Mary and Martha. These are two people we should uphold as heroes of the faith. Martha's first words in this story, incredible. She comes to Jesus days after her brother has passed and says, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Aren't they incredible words of faith? I can't imagine that level of faithfulness. And Mary, a woman who in the next chapter in John, falls at the feet of Jesus and pours perfume on his feet, is chastised by the disciples for doing so. But Jesus says, she recognises who I am. These aren't people we flippantly call heroes of the faith. These are people we should be upholding as examples. Mary and Martha are people we should seek to be like. And when Jesus hears the news, he comes to town and he interacts with his friends. We're given one of the best-known verses of the Bible, perhaps only best-known for its brevity. But Jesus wept, the old two-worder. But those two words, they encapsulate so much theological truth. They, they give us so much beauty. Stop and think about that for a moment. Jesus wept. The God of the universe displayed such deep emotion that it brought him to tears. What was it that brought him to tears? It was seeing his friends weeping. Seeing his friends weeping, recognising his friend was in the tomb, deeply moved him. Now, if I can take a moment for a tangent, because I think there's a serious takeaway message in this verse. Something I feel really passionate about, because I think it's sometimes te tempting as people of faith to, act as, to, to want to act as though we're not upset, saddened, disturbed by sickness and death. I often hear lines like, at least they were Christian, they're in a better place now. Really, it's not sad, it's happy. And I think, I understand the truth people are trying to get at. But as someone that's walked with people going through sickness, walked with people who are in terminal um, sicknesses, I would say all those terms, all those words, they feel at best hollow and at worst callous. We're not meant to pretend everything's okay all the time because when confronted with death and when confronted with other people's anguish, we're told multiple times in this story that God himself was deeply moved. He was troubled. He cried. Which means, I'm going to go out on a limb, that it's okay and not a lack of faith if that's our reaction too. Jesus sees death, lament and suffering and he doesn't just breeze past it. He doesn't just try and explain it away. He experiences it. He takes compassion. He feels it deeply because things aren't meant to be that way. I think that's why that can be our reaction too. We're recognising something is wrong in the world. Death was not how things were ever meant to be. Jesus, as he announces here, he is the life. He's the antithesis of death. Our sin, our fallenness, our brokenness of relationship with him means we are subject to non-life. 
the heart of the gospel is that ultimately we face the same problem Lazarus did. We try to distract ourselves away from this truth, but one day we're going to be like Lazarus, lying in a tomb, six feet under, pushing up daisies. And we should mourn that. It's okay to be sad by that. And yet we hold it with this truth, that our hope comes because the God who create, created and controls all things said these words, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And I'm not comforted just by words, but because he demonstrated his power. Not once, not twice, but many times. We need to live in recognition of the truth said here. Our goodness, when we get to the grave, won't save us. Our money, our things, our friends, they won't save us. There is one who will, and he is the resurrection. He is the life. Jesus' bold claim, this I am statement, it doesn't come in the context of a theological debate. It's not made from the pulpit. It's not made to religious leaders. It's made to a grieving friend. It's followed up by a practical demonstration of his power. But I think the most remarkable thing within this story is Martha's response before Jesus' actions. When Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, her response is, I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God who is to come into the world. She identifies Jesus in a way that many others haven't. The religious leaders had missed this. The ones in the temple had missed this. She recognises that when Jesus says, I am the resurrection, I am the life, that he is making a Messiah claim. He is making a God claim. You can't have it both ways. You either believe he is the Messiah and he has the power over death, that he is life, or he's a liar. Jesus is telling Mary and Martha, he's telling us, he's demonstrating to Lazarus that he is the one with power over death, that he is the giver of life, that our death on this earth won't be final. Instead, we will dwell with the one who is the life, who is the resurrection forever, in eternity. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago my conviction that the gospel is all about life, and I can say that confidently. Not just because the Gospels address the problem that comes in the first pages of Genesis, but because Jesus here identifies himself as the life. The answer hasn't changed since Sunday school. It's all about Jesus. It's all about the life and resurrection. What does any of this mean for today? Other than some simple theological truths, how do we go about living our lives in light of this story? At the end of this story, Lazarus walks from his tomb and Jesus gives some practical instructions. I really love how Jesus does this. When he raised a young girl from death in one of the other Gospels, he said, go get her some food. I imagine everyone standing there gobsmacked with jaws open and Jesus is really dealing with the practical. Here he says, take off the grave clothes. And while I've said we shy away from metaphor a little bit here, it seems this is a little more, bit more plainly who Jesus is. I think there's a metaphor in this story for us. Because we live in light not only of Lazarus' resurrection, but the resurrection of King Jesus. We know we have the promise of eternity, of a resurrection better than the one in this story. One that involves a new body, 
one that will take place in the new earth, one where we won't die ever again, where we will be for eternity with King Jesus. But as we often reflect on, as we often return to here at Richmond, eternity doesn't start when we die. We're not riding out the clock, waiting for eternity to start in however many years. Eternity starts when we bind ourselves to the resurrection and the life. When we bind ourselves to King Jesus. Which means Jesus' words to Lazarus are also his words to us. We're called to take off our grave clothes. And I believe those metaphorical grave clothes are the ways of death that continue to try and ensnare each one of us. They can look like many things, oppression, consumerism, grasping power, fear, gluttony. We all have our different grave clothes. We all have grave clothes we need to shed. And to shed our grave clothes, we are called to something different. We're called to the way of life. We're called to the one who is the life. There's examples of what life looks like in this story. Empathy and compassion that Jesus displays. Faithfulness and dedication of Mary and Martha. Even the loyalty of those that were mourning with them. But we also have many examples throughout the Gospels of the one who is the life. Of what the way of life looks like. We have a king who humbled himself to death, even death on a cross, for our behalf. We have one who was the bread of life for a starving nation. We have one who was a light that came into the darkness. We have a gate that offered a new direction and opportunity. We have a shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep. We need to trust him. We need to trust the life. To take off our grave clothes, we need to put our trust in him and him alone. We need to believe him when he says that he is the life. Our king is the life. Our king is the resurrection. Our king is the hope. What an amazing king we serve. Let us pray together. King Jesus, you have told us that you are the life. We know that there is no life outside of you. Lord, we live in this strange time of the now, but the not yet. Awaiting eternity, but also living in it. Lord, help us to shed our grave clothes, those things that ensnare us. Help us not to seek life outside of you. May our trust, may our hope be in you this week. May we cling onto you as our life Lord thank you that you have the power over death that you have the power over those things that seek to ensnare us Lord may we know your life this morning Amen